Would you join me tonight? We're going to be going to the book of Esther chapter 9 tonight. But on your way to Esther, stop by 2 Corinthians chapter 2 for a very short reading that has so much to say about what we'll be reading about over there in the book of Esther. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We have the Apostle Paul led by the Holy Spirit to write this book to a group of saints in Corinth. And in chapter 2, he shares with us the results of preaching the gospel. The results of preaching the gospel. And it says here in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge to us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are a savor of death unto death, and to the other a savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, not as but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. We noticed in that verse 16, to the one we are a savor of death unto death, and to the other a savor of life unto life, and who is sufficient for these things. All right, would you go back with me to where we've been for a while in the book of Esther, Esther, the next to last chapter of the book of Esther, chapter 9. In Esther chapter 9, we will witness some of the fulfillment of what Ahasuerus has pronounced here in this book of Esther chapter 9. Now, as we read this, we're going we're to read down through verse 5, but we're going to spend our time mainly on verse 2. There's a phrase in that that caught my eye that is worth doing some investigation. But let's start with verse 1 of Esther chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same month, when the king's commandment and his decree drew near to be put, into, put in execution, in that day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, <clears throat> though it was turned to the contrary, that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. Nice parenthetical phrase. A circumventing of the purpose of men. And then in verse 2, the Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all provinces of the king, of King Ahasuerus, to lay hand on such as sought their hurt. Now notice this phrase, and no man could withstand them, for the fear of them, of the Jews, fell upon all people. We're going to spend our time there tonight, but let's read on the next three verses. And all the rulers of the provinces, and the lieutenants, and the deputies, and officers of the king helped the Jews, because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame went out throughout all the provinces. 
For this man, Mordecai, waxed greater and greater. Thus the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and slaughter and destruction that did what they would unto those that hated them. Now we're going to stop there. This chapter is about 32 verses long, and uh, we probably should read the entire chapter, but you read the entire chapter, and we'll pick out a few verses. You read it between now and next time we meet. All right. And verse 2, that phrase there and that, it says something about the uh, many of the people in the provinces. And no man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell upon all people. The fear of the Jews fell upon them. Now, what a statement about the underlying reason for the success of the gospel. Let me say that again. What a reason. What a statement about the underlying reason for the success of the gospel. What makes the gospel successful, in other words? And what prevented these people from rising up? In fact, they went the other way, and they joined with the Jews. What was that that would cause such a change in someone? The success of the gospel is dependent wholly and totally upon God, and we use a term that sums it up, even though it is not a biblical term in such We call it irresistible grace, or we call it effectual grace. I like that term better, effectual grace. What was it that could turn a people that at one time was so angry that they were ready to rise up and kill all these people, all these Jews, and the next moment we find them settle down and cause to be friends with them? What is that? Now, it wasn't their natural inclination because we going to read, we just read there a little bit, the natural inclination was for those that were foreigners, or not foreigners, but those who were members of the provinces, their natural inclination was to rise up against the Jews because they were the enemy of the Jews. And so we find that God works a wonderful work of grace here to illustrate the point that he is the only reason that anybody ever submits to the gospel call And that is, God has the ability of overcoming all resistance that anybody might have against the word of truth. Now, remember what went out first throughout the provinces? It was the edict of death. That was the edict that went out. Every Jew was going to be killed. That was went out. Well, what went out from the Garden of Eden? God said death came and by... By Adam's sin, death fell upon every person. Nobody is exempt. Now, I was listening yesterday or last night on the Internet to a discussion, and, you know, people articulate things differently, and this person was articulating the reason that they believed that when God doesn't have to do much, he's just trying to encourage someone, and really they're saying that there's just, that piece of man in the fall that wasn't affected by the fall. And that's the only thing. They're hoping then that that will respond to a call. Well, the Bible teaches us that we don't have to depend on that at all because God is going to be successful. 
And the reason he is successful is he has a Holy Spirit that is all-powerful. And the Holy Spirit today is termed it by many, whether they say it or not, it's by their actions they prove it. He's very ineffectual. He's very limited. And he is uh, very unable. They have him crippled because they don't trust him. And we find out that this is the reason that we have people giving altar calls and invitations and all kinds of things and doing all kinds of things, trying to get somebody to do something. And the Bible teaches us that we wait on the Lord and he'll take care of his business. We can only look at this passage in the eyes of what the Bible says about someone who could not and would not understand the good news of the gospel. Someone is going to have to overcome that. Someone is going to have to overpower that because we'll go to the grave believing that if God does not intervene with us. Now, there's a verse of Scripture. Uh, Keep your finger here, but turn with me over to the book of Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, there is a verse, and, and the reason I'm bringing this up, we've been studying for the VA home and the, the uh, uh, message there on the Good Samaritan, and it's, this whole message is brought out because of a person's feelings. What he actually believed in his heart, the Lord Jesus is responding to that. In the book of Luke chapter 10 and verse 29, chapter 10, verse 29, it says... This person that's bringing up the question about who's my neighbor, he is, but he willing to justify himself. Now, what does that mean? I'm good enough. I'll make it on my own. I'm justifying myself. Now, justification can only come from God that God that satisfies God. Justification is a God-instituted, God-produced, God-act that he does on his people. He justifies us because of the blood and righteousness of Christ. But we run into people just like I was, and all of us no doubt were, that we made efforts to justify ourselves. And we come up with the terms, my good works will outweigh my bad works. What's that? I'm justifying myself. And so this man is justifying himself, and that's the reason I go on beyond the Good Samaritan just telling us what a good neighbor is, we find out that that Good Samaritan typifies, pictures the very work of Jesus Christ on the behalf of people left to themselves would justify themselves. All right. So who and what is able to make it so men could withstand, overcome them? Who is this? Well, the scriptures will share with us that there's the truth about irresistible grace, but I mentioned that I like effectual grace better, and there's an effectual calling or efficacious grace. Now, it means that there is a truth that the Spirit never, ever fails to bring His own to Christ. Never fails to bring the lost sheep to Christ. There's never going to be a failure on that part. God is able. Holy Spirit works irresistibly in the lives of sinners, effectually in the lives of sinners. What did we read over there in the book of 
Esther chapter 9 and verse 2. Let's just read that again. As we think about something had to transpire there that was more powerful than just the people saying we have good news. We have the best news that ever could be made, and yet people will not respond to it. They'll walk away from it, say that they don't need it. They may even say, thank you for bringing it to us, but don't have to bring it back. All kinds of things like that happen. Here in the book of Esther, chapter 9 and verse 2, it tells us there that, uh, and no man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell upon all people. How is it that God acts in such a way that they cannot withstand their natural inherent desire not to cry out to God? How is it that they can come to a point that they will give up? How is it they can come to a point when they cry out for mercy? What happens? There's a whole bunch of people throughout the provinces here that the good news goes out and they, by the grace of God, do not die in the conflict. Why? Because they have joined themselves to the Jews. What changed their mind? Was it the swords they saw? Nope, that's not it. They had swords too. Was it the attitude that the Jews had? No, no, that's not enough either. It's going to have to be an act of God. It's going to have to be an act of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to have to do something for us or we'll leave this life without Christ, without God, and without hope in this world. God must work within the sinner to make him willing to come to Christ. Just as we find over here, the example, the type and the shadow in the picture is played out in reality whenever anybody is saved. When God saves somebody, he has had to do something for them before they ever say, the Lord has saved me. He has to work in them in a way that is so contrary to their nature. Now, mankind is naturally resistant to God. That's just... That's the way we're born. We're naturally resistant. But there is such an influence that God uses in his power, in his mercy, and in his grace that overcomes that resistance. He overcomes it, and we find out for grace, by grace are we saved. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of John chapter 6. Passages of scripture that we're going over tonight we, we go over often. They're so good. They're so blessed. We read them and then rejoice in them and find out how true it is that God had to do something before we would ever come to Him. We would hold up our fist to our dying day and say, I'll not have you rule over me. Just like there was a whole bunch of people in all of those uh, provinces that did hold up their fist and we find out that the Jews slew them with the sword. All right, we're not in that kind of business today, but we have people that will hold up their fist to Christ and take it out on you and me. All right, here in the book of John chapter 6, John chapter 6, and this chapter is just so full of the good blessings of God overcoming, overpowering anything that we have. Verse 44 No man can come to me except the Father. Now, no man will come. No man can come. No man wants to come. 
No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Now, this word draw, we're going to look at a couple other verses of Scripture that share with us how that word is used, but one of the best translations of that word would be compel. Compel them, except the Father compel them. And we have that word mentioned in one of the parables about going out and inviting. Well, when the, the real servant, the one servant, the Holy Spirit goes out, he does compel. Now, we can't compel. We invite them, we may drive them, we may do that, but we cannot compel them to, to believe the gospel. We cannot compel them to believe God. But the Holy Spirit has the power to compel us to believe the gospel and rejoice in it. So many there did not go along with what the other many did. It was a savor of life unto life to some and a savor of death unto death to others, just like it goes on today. So no man can come to the Father. No man can come to me except which the Father sent me draw him and I will raise him up in the last day. In John chapter 21, John chapter 21, this same word is used in John chapter 21, and it gives us a little more idea of what this word means. John chapter 21 and verse 11. John 21 and verse 11. Now, this is an individual that this word is used with, but this individual is going to do something. He is not asking the fish to come ashore. They're in a net. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes. Now, Peter compelled them to come in. Peter drew them in. Peter drug them in. Peter landed all the fish that were in that net. And that's what that word means. Unless we're drawn, compelled, drawn by influence and power by God Almighty, we will not come. And then, if you'll look with me in, uh, in Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, and there in verse 19, Acts chapter 16 and verse 19, the same word that we found draw, better translated compel, is used here with regard to Paul and Silas. Now, Paul and Silas are not interested in being put in prison. It says there, and when her masters saw that the hope of their gains were gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers. Can you see that in your mind's eye? Now, they're resisting, <laughs> but they are drawn, compelled to come. And you can follow what else happens here, but that word is illustrated in this passage of Scripture that they are drawn. Now, the Holy Spirit does this in such a miraculous way. The Holy Spirit is as powerful as God the Father and God the Son. They are co-equal, co-powerful, co-omniscient, co-omnipotent, co-everything. And they all have their part to play in the salvation of people, in the salvation of the elect, in the salvation of lost sheep. They had all their parts to do in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They had all their parts to play in the creation of the world. They have all their parts to play in salvation of God's people. They all do their part as it is laid out in the covenant of grace. There is in complete agreement. 
And even though the elect will resist to the very last breath, we find out how gracious and wonderful it is that the Holy Spirit can overcome that resistance. Overcome the resistance. Bring it to a nil. Bring it to, in fact, we cry out, Lord, what will you have me do? It is such overcoming and overwhelming power of God. The Father makes the call. If you join me in the book of Romans, another passage of Scripture, we can't wear out, but we will read it many times. In Romans chapter 8, notice here in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is not a bystander. The Holy Spirit is an absolute participant in our salvation. He is not inviting and then if we consent. Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit of all beings in the universe know that will not happen. We will not come. We may say we will, but we can't. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit know the problem. And they, in the covenant of grace, determined how to overcome that problem. And part of it is the Holy Spirit will exercise His great sovereign power in the hearts and minds of people that don't want Him, but He goes against their resistance and overwhelms them with grace, and they bow. And they will join the church. (laughs) Not the local, but the universal church. They will bow and bend and be at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ with great joy, thankful for Him overcoming their all their thinking all-powerful resistance. All right, here in the book of Romans, chapter 8 and verse 30, the scriptures share this. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, whom the Father did predestinate, them he also called. Now this is a call. Now, I I think I've shared this before, but we had a neighbor. His name was Bobby King. He was about my twin brother and my age. I haven't seen him since I was just six or seven years old. But his father had, his grandfather, he lived with his grandfather, had the ability of putting his fingers in his mouth and whistling, you could hear it two miles away. That meant Bobby headed home. Now, it didn't mean anything to us, but it meant something to him. And he headed home. Now, when we heard mom cry out, that meant something to us. Well, God calls in a way that effectually strikes our resistance and overcomes it, and the Holy Spirit is there to do that. goes on to say, whom he called... Them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, what happens to our self-justification or justifying ourselves under this? It falls away because we cannot keep it. It's not ours. We don't want it any longer because we can be justified by the justifier, and his justification is absolute and will not have a blemish in it. So... We have this great God overcoming 
our resistance. As we find those many people, how many it doesn't say, probably a great number of people that were down there in those provinces that joined in with what yesterday was their enemies. They found out they're not the enemies. These are the people I want to be with. Now, I would shake my fist at them yesterday, but something came upon me that caused me to love them because now we are purchased by the same blood. We have the same Father and the same Holy Spirit has overcome the resistance that we had. All right? Here it tells us, despite our resistance to the grace of God, God's grace is so powerful that it will overcome all our resistance. Yesterday I'll fight tooth and toenail against this, and today I bow. Yesterday, I hate that man. Today, I love him. What a blessing God extends to his people that he would overcome, which we inherited by in the fall of Adam, to be resistant to everything that God stands for. Just look at the resistance that Adam had towards God. He covered himself with some scratchy fig leaves and hid himself in the garden and didn't want to say a word to God and God called him out of that and covered him with the coats of skins and you know what? They were back together again. It didn't change the effect of the fall. It changed the effect of the fall for them just as it doesn't change the effect of the fall when he saves one of his lost sheep, but it does change the effect of the fall for that lost sheep. New life is given. They're brought into full fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We find that this is dramatized when the Lord Jesus Christ shared with Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he had no concept in his mind what that meant. He tells us that. He didn't understand a word that the Lord Jesus was saying. And yet, it appears that later in his life, he understood what that was all about. That the Holy Spirit had revealed to him, drawn him, overcame him, and let him know this is not a physical feat, this is a spiritual feat, and this is what must take place or we will meet God on bad terms. The Holy Ghost gives us the new birth. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. You know, can you imagine what some of the families said about the families that joined the Jews? Now, I knew he was crazy. I knew he was an idiot. I knew he wasn't right. And this really proves it. Some families were torn apart over this very thing that somebody was effectually moved upon to go and join these folks that were yesterday their enemies. And today, they're the same family. Just as it is with the church, how people will speak out and talk about people who got Jesus, got religion, whatever they want to term it, and yet the person themselves are at peace with God because of the work of the Holy Spirit. All right, here in the book of, of uh, John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word 
and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. Now notice how dramatic this event is. The last phrase. That's dramatic. That is something we cannot produce ourselves. We're resistant to that. And yet it says, but is passed from death unto life. That is dramatic. That is overwhelming. That's God's work. That's greatness of God that he would take a person dead in trespasses and sin and say, pass him from that to life. And that's everlasting life. That's eternal life. That's life that God breathes into us. Whatever happened to those folks, there are a whole bunch of people who made fun of them, mocked them, teased them, but the next day proved different. Those who resisted, we find out just as in the end, those that were without Christ, those that never had the Holy Spirit come upon them, will meet God on the left-hand side. All right? So it's as no condemnation, but it's passed from death unto life. That's a dramatic transaction that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit performs, and it, it holds all resistance on our part, but He is overwhelming. Now, the illustration that God gives us is when the Lord Jesus comes up to Lazarus' tomb. Lazarus resisted because he couldn't do anything else. It was not him thinking that he had, should have this. It was God knowing that this is going to happen. If it's going to happen, it has to come from God. And we find out his call and then the effectual call. And Lazarus is the next thing as at the door of the tomb. God, what an overwhelming power of God to do something like that and to take us from a spiritual dead position and raise us to life everlasting is an overwhelming, powerful exercise of God and his omnipotency over our own being. In the book of Acts chapter 16, in the book of Acts chapter 16, we find here, Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, there was a certain woman from Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira. Her name was Lydia. Now, this is an interesting thing because this is something she could not do for herself. We cannot open our own heart. It's an impossibility. We're resistant to it. We have natural resistance. Talk about hoping we can resist a cold or resist uh, some disease. We are resistant, naturally resistant, to God, to God's Word, and God's power, and God's declaration, and everything about Him. And it says here, the seller of purple, that which worship God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened. He opened effectually. <clears throat> Any resistance was there, he had more power to overcome it. He is all-powerful. And she attended unto the things that were spoken of Paul, the, whose heart... Why did she listen? Why did she want to be with Paul? Why did all these things happen? It wasn't her natural estate 
to want to listen to the word of God or a preacher of righteousness. It was because God effectually opened her heart. God effectually raised her from the dead, took her from death to life, the resurrection. And over in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, we read this, just as those folks, so many of them throughout the provinces, let's just think about those provinces being the world. You know, to them it was their world. 127 provinces, one man ruled over all, had an ambassador. First one was not worth much, Adam fell. Second one was worth a lot, he has high regard among those who are called out of darkness to his marvelous light, Mordecai. Well, down there in the hinterlands, the word came out, we're going to be killing all the Jews. And then we find out that there's another edict coming out. Good news. And a bunch of those guys that were ready to raise up their swords against these Jews, somehow, by a miracle, not by their intelligence, not by their own wit, but by the grace of God, they said, let's go join those folks. All right, here. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the scripture shares this, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins. Now, this is an interesting word, isn't it? Hath quickened. If you just think about that for a moment, we find there's an impossibility here. It needs to be done, but we have an incapable of doing it. We're resistant to it. Hath quickened us together with Christ. Now he raised Christ from the dead, and just the same he raises us from the dead. By grace ye are saved. Well, we go on and read that wonderful passage, for by grace are you saved through faith. You know, we just learn more and more. We find out how little we had to do with that. In fact, as one old preacher said, the only thing I contributed to my salvation was my sins. And that's all we have to contribute. And then we find out that the Lord Jesus Christ paid for all of them completely and totally, past, present, and future. The spiritual resurrection from the dead. We are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We read these words. Titus chapter 3 and there in verse 5. Not by works of righteousness. Those folks that lived in the hinterlands and this great Persian empire, it wasn't because they were smarter. It wasn't because they were more intelligent. It's only because of the grace of God. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. They didn't go over there and offer a bunch of food. If we get to be with you, we'll give you this. No, they weren't tithing to get into it. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. By regeneration, by regeneration, the new birth. This is an all-powerful activity of an almighty God that he imposes upon those that are dead in sin, those he has chosen before the foundation of the world, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, he will impose upon them this great life, this resurrected power, this renewing of the Holy Ghost, this regeneration, this new birth. He will 
come upon them in such power, overwhelming power, and put down all resistance and say, now you know you're mine. The transaction of of this gracious calling is always one-sided. This transaction is one-sided. It's not dual. It's mono. This transaction, God calls without our help, involvement, or even assent. It's one-sided. It is God. Now, God knows how dead we are. We don't. And even after salvation, we don't know how dead we were. But God knows how dead we were. How dead we're dead in trespasses and sin. And then he has the prescription for it. His almighty power. His effectual call. His overwhelming grace in the situation. And we read over here, the Apostle Paul was writing about himself, I'm sure, but he's also writing about all of us in the book of Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. But when... But when it pleased God, He's the one. It's not two-sided. This calling is one-sided. God's side, He's in it. He's for us. He's not, well, I hope He's for the church. He's for the lost sheep. And He will reveal Himself. And when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace, when God did it, at the time He wanted it, under the circumstances He had planned, He will do it. He t- and we read this, that verse and this next one Sunday, but I want to read it again. The book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We think we're so good. We got it all figured out. We're going to the right church. We're doing everything that's necessary. And I don't know about you, but I never was satisfied. Just never was enough. Just never. And, you know, when God does it, it's always enough. It takes care of it. Okay, here. Verse 13 of Philippians chapter 2. For it is God. Can you imagine this about every one of those people that we read about in chapter 9, verse 2 of the book of Esther, all those folks joined with the Jews. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. When all is said and done, that's the verse that tells us what happened in Esther chapter 9 and verse 2. It was God that both willed worketh and willed to do of his good pleasure in every one of those, just like he does for everyone that he's ever going to save. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God is so magnificent in his salvation. Good news went out to every province, 127. I don't have the map with me and it wouldn't mean much anyway because it's little. And comparatively speaking, it was a giant part of the globe. 
127 provinces. How many languages? It doesn't tell us. But everybody that was out there got the message in their language. It was appointed good news, both to Jews and Gentiles. Many Gentiles, the good news was so compelling that they were caused to bow. No man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell upon all people. No man could withstand them. You know, that's a negative statement about standing. (laughs) They could not stand. They could not stand. And then that word fear. The shaking and trembling of one afraid or in reverence. Fear the Lord. Two verses we'd like to look at, and then we're going to look at a short passage, and then we'll be close. Psalm 14. Psalm 14. The work of the Holy Spirit, the effectual call. Effectually calling His people out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. Effectually calling them, overcoming their will and all their thoughts that they had it all figured out. Here in the Psalms, Psalm 14, verse 5, it says, There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. He's not my co-pilot. He's the pilot. We're just thankful that we get to ride along. If he hadn't stopped to pick us up, we'd have never got on. And then Isaiah chapter 2. That's the same word for fear that we read there in Esther. In Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 10, again, the same word is brought up here. Isaiah 2 verse 10. It says, Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord for, and for the glory of His majesty. There was fear. Majesty of God demands it. Respect, honor. Lord, what will you have me to do? And then finally, turn with me to the book of John chapter 6 again. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 44 and verse 45. This is what God does effectually. Again, the resistance that he overcomes. I've said this before. When it came to the creation of the heavens and the earth, there was absolutely no resistance. Not one Adam resisted him doing it. When he created the Adams. But when he saves us, he is dealing with pure resistance. And he is powerful enough to overcome that resistance. And the church is thankful. All right, no man can come to me, verse 44, except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father. This is the Father teaching, cometh 
unto Christ, drawn to Christ. There's where we sit. There's where we rest. That's where we come to pay our dearest respects. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. All right.